This pulpit is not one uh, in which those of us who preach here do uh, very many show and tells, as I'm sure you're aware, but I'm going to sort of go against the flow today and make an exception. Some of you may be familiar with what I'm about to show you. Uh, there's little doubt that while it may not appear in any list of literary awards, uh, that this was one of the most frequently read books in our household for many years. It was, of course, Richard Scarry's Pig Will and Pig Won't, A Book of Manners. Growing up, our son Duncan could recite this book verbatim. Uh, if you don't know the scintillating sp uh, plot line to the story, allow me to at least remind you of how this story begins. Mother Pig and Daddy Pig had two little pigs, Pig Will and Pig Won't. Whenever they are asked to do something, Pig Will says, I will, and Pig Won't always says, I won't. If Mother Pig asks them to please be quiet, Pig Will whispers, I will, and Pig Won't shouts out, I won't. Bad boy. And as the story continues, when uh, Mother Pig invites the children to go shopping with her, Pig Will, of course, says, I will. Pig Won't says, I won't. And as you might guess, Pig Will ends up having a fabulous time that day out with his mother. He gets an ice cream. He gets to uh, get a red balloon. He gets to go on an automated pony ride. He has lots of fun. Meanwhile, Pig Won't is miserable at home. Daddy Pig has to work, so he's unable to play with Pig Won't. Uh, he asks his friends if they'll play. They're busy doing other things. There are no cookies in the cookie jar in the kitchen. The TV won't work. Pig Won't is miserable. And the story continues along that vein. Now, the reason I tell you this, and some of you are seriously wondering why I'm telling you this, is because in the parable that we're looking at today, we have something of a variation on Richard Scarry's characters. At least, uh, as Jesus tells this particular story, there is a father and there are two sons, and one son is like a pig will who won't, and the other is like a pig won't who will. And if that sounds confusing, hopefully it will become a little more clear in a moment when we read the passage. But first, a, a quick reminder that through the summer, uh, we're looking at parables of Jesus, these greatest stories ever told, as we've uh, entitled the series. And as we've sought to point out every week in this series, Jesus used these parables as a teaching way to open up for us our understanding of the kingdom of God. God's rule and reign over our lives, and the radical difference that it makes in our lives when we enter into that kingdom, are part of that kingdom. And our parable today comes just after Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem on what we now refer to as Palm Sunday, the week before Jesus would go to the cross, die for our sins, and be raised from the dead. And as he rides into Jerusalem, Jesus is, is welcomed rapturously by the crowds. Hosanna, they cry. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, they were acknowledging him as the promised Messiah, as the promised King. And needless to say, this does not sit well with the religious leaders of the time who are utterly opposed to Jesus. Here are the masses responding to Jesus as the promised king, masses that included the deadbeats of Jewish society, people like the tax collectors and the prostitutes, people whom the religious leaders maintained had absolutely no place whatsoever in God's kingdom. And so the religious authorities confront Jesus. And specifically, they confront him about the authority with which he's acting, and it's in the context of that confrontation with the religious leaders that Jesus tells this parable, in which he redirects the conversation away from their specific question about his authority 
to a question about their refusal to enter into the kingdom of God that Jesus is ushering in. And the parable that Jesus tells them is the parable of these two sons. So that Jesus actually told two parables about two sons. And the much more famous one, of course, is the parable of the prodigal son or sons. This one is the much less well-known one, but it's our parable today. And here's what I hope that we're going to see as we look at this today. In the words of the New Testament commentator Craig Blomberg, it is that in God's kingdom, performance takes priority over promise. And we're going to think about this by looking at the parable in three parts. First, we're going to look at the sending father. Secondly, the obedient son. Thirdly, the disobedient son. Also, that we might understand better this morning that in God's kingdom, prom, uh, pro, uh, uh, performance takes priority over promise. But let's uh, read the passage together first. You'll find it on page 10 of your order of worship. If you want to read it in one of your pew Bibles, you'll find it on page 826. We're looking at Matthew 21 beginning at verse 28. Hear now the word of the Lord. What do you think, Jesus said? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes Go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. This is the word of the Lord. It's trustworthy and it's true, and it's given to us in love. Let's pray together. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be found acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So first, uh, the sending father. Look again at verse 28. What do you think, Jesus said? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. Now, it's easy to rush to the reaction of the two sons here, but if we do so, we miss something quite fundamental here uh, that, that Jesus is showing us, which is that, that, that he portrays God here as a father who sends his sons to work in the vineyard. Vineyards feature quite prominently throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New. In the Old Testament, that, that tends to represent, symbolize Israel. In the New Testament, it symbolizes the kingdom of God. And as we'll see in a few moments, Jesus has something to say about how we actually enter into the vineyard. But at another level, he's also teaching us here that being a son or a daughter of God, being a child of God, being a Christian, is to be involved in what we might call vine work. And by vine work, I'm referring to the wide range of Christian ministry that we undertake together as we present the good news of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit with prayer that through this presentation, people will come to faith in Jesus, that their lives will be transformed, and that they'll grow into maturity in Christ. So that as Jason or Chris or I preach, as we study the Bible in our groups, as we speak a word of encouragement to one another uh, out of Scripture, as we talk to our unbelieving friends and family members about Jesus and the gospel, we're, we're planting, we're watering, we're fertilizing, we're tending the vine. We're doing gospel vine work. And that's to happen seven days a week. That's, in a sense, a full-time job. But for those of us who are here today who are followers of Jesus, it certainly includes Sundays when we come here to work in this particular corner of the vineyard. And I say that because it can be very tempting 
when attending a healthy-sized congregation like this one with a paid staff and other volunteers to take on something of a consumer mindset when, where we just come here to receive, to be fed. The Bible over and over again challenges Christians to set aside the mindset of a consumer and to adopt the attitude of a servant, of a worker. Last Saturday, I went to MetLife Stadium to watch uh, Manchester United, who I've supported since I was like six, uh, play against Arsenal. As I'm sure you all know, Man United won 2-0. But you you may not have heard this analogy, but but the church has sometimes been compared to a soccer game, where 22,000 people in the stands, desperately in need of exercise, are watching 22 people on the field who really could do with a rest. (laughs) And we don't want to be like that kind of a church here. We long for every one of us to hear the call of the Father sending us to work in the vineyard. I have two Australian friends who live in Sydney, Cole Marshall and Tony Payne, and and a few years ago they wrote a book about Christian life and ministry called The Vine Project, and they helpfully refer to vine work on Sundays as the ministry of the pew, that every Christian is called to the ministry of the pew on Sunday morning. So, so if, if you're a Christian and you're here most Sundays, what might that, might that look like? Well, think about before the service. Then maybe you get here a few minutes before the service starts, not a few minutes after, and as you walk in, you, you're prayerfully considering where you might sit that Sunday, that you're not automatically going to sit in the same place as you normally do, but you look to see, is there someone here that I don't know that I could go introduce myself to? Or someone who's sitting on their own, who I don't want them to feel like no one's paying any attention to them. And then during the service, you, you, you listen attentively, and you sing and respond heartily, Because believe it or not, when newcomers come into a church, one of the first things they look at are the people sitting around them. And they're asking, do these people actually look like they want to be here this morning? And by you responding wholeheartedly, they say, well, they they seem to be pretty happy to be here. And then after the service, Ministry of the Pew continues, where if at all possible, you don't just rush off and leave here, but you go out to the sidewalk fellowship, or you reconnect with someone that you met at the beginning of the service who's visiting, or maybe you share something in the service that you learned, or you might even pray with someone. All the prayer doesn't have to happen up here at the front. And all of that's this Ministry of the Pew. That like the father sending their sons to work, God commands his sons and daughters to do vine work. So first we have the sending father, but then in the parable, the second thing we see is the obedient son. Look at verses 28 and 29. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he changed his mind and went. So this first son, when he's asked to go, just says no. Initially, he's the pig won't of the story. It's clear that he meant the initial no because Jesus then tells us that later he changes his mind and he actually did go. He becomes the pig won't who will. Now, just as with the dishonest manager that we were looking at two weeks ago in the parable in Luke 16, it's important here to recognize what Jesus is commending and what he's not commending. Jesus is commending the fact that this son in the end is obedient, that he actually went to the vineyard to work. He's not saying that the son was to be commended for his his kind of brask honesty initially or his hesitation prior to his repentance. No, Jesus lifts up this son positively solely for his change of mind, for his repentance, for his eventual obedience. 
And it's worth just pausing for a moment here and recognizing, therefore, that Jesus in no way in this parable is endorsing procrastination or hesitation on our responses to the call of God in our lives. Over the years, I've met a number of people whose attitude to, seems to be that, you know, there's, there's plenty of time and opportunity to make things right with God in the future, to change direction and go God's way. In the meantime, they decide they'd prefer to go their own way, a way that seems to them to have more thrills, more excitement, more action. They'll have their fun now and then get to God perhaps later. And maybe a few of us here today have such a perspective. You're, you're here in church, which is absolutely great. But the truth is, you know, you're still calling the shots in your life. You're still determined to be the captain of your fate and the master of your soul, at least for the time being. You're pretty sure you believe in God, and one day you'll get around to giving him your life completely, just not yet. And here I'm not talking actually to those of you who haven't yet come to faith in Christ, but if you're honest, you, act, you do feel like you're on your way, and you do actually want to get there, but you're still sincerely grappling with some of the claims of the Christian faith. And if that's you, you know, as, as Chris said at the beginning of the service, we're absolutely delighted that you're here, because there's actually no better place to grapple with those things than in the context of a local church. But it's quite possible that there are others of us here for whom the hesitancy is because we do just want to hold on to control of our lives for a little bit longer, and then we'll turn to God. And let me suggest to you, if if that's you, that there are two reasons that that might be a short-sighted view of things. First of all, you never know when your last day on this planet is coming, and it will be too late to respond. Now, I know that can immediately sound like uninvited emotional pressure, when I was growing up in Northern Ireland as a teenager, we would go as a youth group to these church meetings, and it, it, you would be very, very surprised if the evangelist who was up at the front would not at some point mention the bus. And when I say that, he, what it meant was that he would say, you know, you could leave this meeting tonight and walk out that front door and be hit by a bus and your life would be over. And the fact that a lot of these churches were located in places where a bus never went by the front door was, was irrelevant to this, but we, we got the point because there was some truth behind, behind the statement that you never know when your time is coming. Like many people, I was greatly saddened by the news this week of the death of the Irish singer Sinead O'Connor. We don't know yet the exact circumstances of her death, but what I do know is that she was only 10 months older than I am, and she's now dead. To bring it even closer, all of us here, I imagine, have had dear friends or family members who have died unexpectedly, perhaps even some at a young age, and so we'll say things like, such an untimely death, she died so young. All of which is to say, you you never know. Someone has put it like this, there's one deathbed conversion in Scripture, which is the thief on the cross, so that no one should despair, but there's only one, so that no one should presume. So that's the first reason not to delay, but there's a second reason that none of us should presume that what is clear to us today, right now, will necessarily be clear to us tomorrow, that in God's providential purposes, the reality is that there are times when He makes us more receptive to the truth of the gospel than at other times. 
The fact that you're thinking that you'll come around to giving your life to God at some point in the future would suggest that at least presently He's at work in your life such that you recognize some truth in the gospel, some beauty in the gospel, that the Bible's worldview seems at least somewhat coherent and cogent to you. So here's what I want you to consider. The fact that you're here in church on a Sunday morning when you could be doing 101 other things today, on this glorious summer day. I mean, it's glorious out there. The humidity's broken, but you're here right now. I would say is a pretty sure sign that God is at work in your life right now, and you should not ignore that. You would be foolish to think, you know, I'll come back to these big questions of, of life, of God, of Jesus sometime in the future and pick it up, because the reality is there's no guarantee that God will be knocking on your door as He is right now. Indeed, the longer you hold off turning to God, the evidence of other people's lives would suggest that the harder it becomes to turn to Him. The further you get into living for yourself, the harder and harder it is to get out. If you sense that God is revealing Himself to you at this point in your life, it's important to, to recognize that while it may feel very, very hard to say yes now, it's going to be even harder a month from now, a year from now, further years from now. Don't, don't ignore his promptings. So Jesus commends the first son in the parable, not for his initial hesitation, but only for his eventual repentance and going to the vineyard. That's why in verses 31 and 32, at the end of our passage, Jesus compares the tax collectors and the, and the prostitutes to the first, the first son. We're so used to these characters popping up throughout the Gospels that we, we can easily forget the seismic shock of what Jesus is saying here. Because here were people who would have been brought up in the Jewish way of belief and practice, but who had previously rejected it all. The tax collectors and the prostitutes would have been considered by most in that day as the scum of society, held in the lowest possible esteem. These were people who previously defiantly had said to God, we will not obey your word, and then had blatantly demonstrated this disobedience in their lives. I imagine all of us know people like that here in the city. But look at the 180-degree shift that happens in their lives that Jesus mentions in verse 32. Jesus says, for John came to you, talking to the religious leaders, in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. So Jesus says, when the tax collectors and the prostitutes heard John the Baptist preaching, they'd listened, they'd thought it through, they changed their minds and changed their actions. And Jesus' point is that John's message and Jesus' message were the same message. What Jesus refers to here is the way of righteousness. That is, it requires God's, God's requirement for righteous living. But prior to that, it refers to this glorious uh, promise and fulfillment of one who would make us right with God, not because of anything that we do, but because of what He would do for us. And who is the one of whom that way of righteousness is speaking? Rubanus, who was a Benedictine monk and theologian in the ninth century, put it well when he wrote, John came preaching the way of righteousness because he pointed to Jesus. And that's where the hope for these tax collectors and prostitutes lay. It was their belief and trust in John's message about Jesus. Now, as I said earlier, God's kingdom involves perfor- where is a place where performance takes priority over promise. But what we want to make sure we see here is that kingdom performance always, always, always begins with 
faith and trust in Jesus. Sometimes we see this word believe in the Bible, like Jesus mentions here, and we think it just means some sort of mental assent. But belief in the Bible is always more than mental assent. It means to trust. It means to bank your life on. It means to put your faith in something. And in this case, it means to put your faith in Jesus, who came to do absolutely everything to bring you into the vineyard, that Jesus came and lived the life that you and I should have lived, a life of perfect, righteous obedience. And he died the death that you and I should have died, paying the penalty for our mess-ups, our sin, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be adopted into God's family, so that we could be received into the kingdom. And while the religious leaders here rejected Jesus and everything that he had on offer, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, having spurned God's way in the past, had now embraced the gospel and put their trust in Jesus. Jesus here, therefore, has no intention of excusing the prostitutes and the tax collectors' prior behavior. He's not winking at their sin. Rather, he says no matter what sins they committed in the past, no matter what sordid details might have been written in the pages of their lives, like the first son, they had changed their mind. They had repented, and so they'd become obedient to the will of God. And I hope, I hope you can see what incredible good news this is for any of us here who might look at our past and who just, we just see a mess. We look at our lives and we see a train wreck. And it could be easy to think that because you've ignored God for so long in your life, and that you've done things for which you yourself find it hard to forgive yourself, that there is no hope for you. But Jesus is saying here, oh, there's all the hope in the world for you. That if like the tax collectors and the prostitutes, you repent, you change directions in your life, you put your trust in Jesus, then all the riches, all the joy, all the hope of the kingdom of yours, no matter what your past, no matter what your past, and that's the greatest of all news. So we've seen the sending father, we've seen the, the obedient son. Thirdly, we come to the disobedient son. Look again at what Jesus says about him in verse 30. He went to the other son and he said the same, and he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. So the second son is like pig will, in that when he's told to go to the vineyard to work, he says, I will, but then he reveals himself to be like pig will who won't, as he doesn't go. Now, the problem for this second son was not that he had so-called good intentions of going, and then something came up that prevented him from doing it. He didn't say, I will, thinking that he would. He said, yes, sir, right away, but that's where it ended. And we know that because while with the first son, Jesus says he changed his mind, there was no change of mind here for the second son. He did what he originally intended to do, which was essentially to sit on the couch binge-watching Netflix all day, eating loaded nachos or something similar. But while, while this was not, therefore, a case of, of good intentions, intending to do something and then something else comes up such that we don't do it, it might still be worth us just taking a moment to consider the world of good intentions because it's one that I imagine most of us have frequently inhabited. This second son had intended to go but couldn't in the end. I think we would probably feel some sympathy for him because we all fall into this category at times, don't we? We are people of good intentions. And yet intentions really aren't worth anything if they don't end up 
being acted upon. It's a well-known saying that the road to destruction, the road to hell, is paved with good intentions. 20th century English writer Aldous Huxley is quoted as saying, actually, hell isn't merely paved with good intentions. It's walled and roofed with them and indeed furnished as well. A few years ago, Derek Kohler, who's a Canadian professor of psychology, wrote an article picking up on this saying. The article was entitled, The The Road to Failure is Paved with Good Intentions. He and his colleagues conducted a survey in which participants were asked to nominate either a household task, like painting your living room, or a, a leisurely activity, like a weekend away, that they wished to complete within the next three months. And when they were asked what the likelihood of success of completing that task or activity was, the respondents on average said that they gave themselves a two out of three chance. Well, the reality was that when the participants were then contacted three months later, fewer than a third had actually completed the task or activity. And Kohler's research suggested that our self-predictions tend to be far too optimistic because people base them on their present intentions without really considering how readily those intentions will be translated into further behavior. I think that's true. My guess is that there's another factor in play here as well, that we we like to base our image of ourselves more on our intentions than our actual actions. You know, if you think of a situation at work where your supervisor comes to you and says, have you been able to do that task that I asked you about a few days ago? And you say, well, it's on my to-do list today, which is being interpreted as, yes, I've been intending to do that, which is a lie because you know you completely forgot about it. So why do we, we put it into the intention category? Because it actually makes us look better to our supervisor, and it makes us feel better about ourselves if our self-image is based on our intentions, not on our actual actions. But if you want to know yourself more fully and accurately, you can only really find such self-knowledge in your actual actions, not in your intentions. And obviously there are times where our intentions, we're unable to fulfill our intentions because legitimately things come up. But in general, if something is important to you, you'll not just think about it, you'll do it. And as Christians, because our identity is not found through looking good, through good intentions, but rather firmly through God's love for us through Jesus in spite of what we've done, We have a freedom to be more honest about what we have done and haven't done, what we can do and what we can't do. Again, all of that is a bit of an aside because this second son doesn't even have the original intention to go to the vineyard. He did what he originally intended to do, which was to stay at home. However, his words to his father suggested otherwise. His words were insincere. He says something that he didn't mean. And notice that Jesus, again, is addressing this parable to the religious leaders of the day. He's clearly saying to them, you're just like the second son. For all your words, for all your public prayers, for all your promises, you're just like the son who said, I will, but wouldn't. And the fact that Jesus addresses this parable to religious people and wants them to see that they're represented by the second son, the son who says he will, but won't, has to raise the question for Those of us who are here sort of as church people, am I like the second son? Am I in the habit of making insincere promises to God? 
Let me give you a few examples. Every time parents bring their child for baptism here, they're asked to make certain promises. One of the questions we ask here at Central is this, do you unreservedly dedicate your child to God and promise in humble reliance upon divine grace that you will endeavor to set before her a godly example, that you will pray with and for her, that you will teach her the truths of the Christian faith, and that you will strive by all the means of God's appointment to bring her up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now, in all my years of ordained ministry, I've never had a parent stand at the, at the font and suddenly say, you know what, I, I don't think I can say yes to that. The answer's always been yes. And yet, every pastor can tell you of parents, maybe not a lot, but parents who after the baptism of their child rarely darken the door of the church, and you're left wondering in those situations, what about the promise? A few moments, we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. Every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it's a renewal of that covenant into which we entered at baptism, a, a reaffirmation of faith in God and His glorious gospel promises, represented by the, the, body, by the, the, the body and the blood. And our promise in return to seek to live that week as children of the King, as, as children of our loving Heavenly Father. But if we walk out from the service having shared in the Lord's Supper, and we return to ways of belittling people, hurting people, refusing to forgive other people, well, the question again is, well, what about the promise? Some of us here have made specific promises not only to God, but to another person on the day of our wedding. And they weren't just words, they were promises, they were vows, they were commitments, promises that have already been tested and will continue to be tested to see whether you really meant them. Stories told of a husband that goes to see a counselor because his marriage is in serious, serious trouble. He wants to know what he can do. The counselor says to him, do you remember the vows that you took on, on the day of your wedding? And the husband says, yeah, I, th I think I can remember them. And the counselor says, what were they? He said, I said to my wife, I take you to be my wife, and in the presence of God, I promise to be to you a loving, faithful, and loyal husband from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death, to love and to cherish, till death do us part. And the counselor said, so in the balance of things, this for better, for worse, which stage of life would you say you're in right now in your marriage? He said, well, for worse. And the counselor said, and, and what did you promise that you would be in that time? And he said, I promised to be a loving, faithful, and loyal husband to love and to cherish. And the counselor says, okay, well, let's work on that until we meet again. Jesus teaches in this parable that in God's kingdom, performance takes priority over promise. The promise is only worth something if it actually leads to action. Or as the Protestant reformers put it, that we're saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone, that genuine faith always leads to action. Well, I know you've been dying to know, so let me tell you, towards the end of Pig Will and Pig Won't, it's Pig Will's birthday party. Pig won't, however, is not there because he is a bad cold, because he refused to listen to the wise counsel of his mother, and now he's cooped up in bed feeling sorry for himself because he's missing the party. However, even though he didn't deserve to, Lowly Worm, any of you remember Lowly Worm? Lowly Worm brings uh, Pig won't a piece of birthday cake to go with his cough medicine. 
And the next day, Pigwont is feeling much better, and he tells Lilyworm, you know, that was very nice of you to bring me uh, some chocolate cake. And Lilyworm says, you know, it's nice to be nice. You should try it sometimes. And that gets Pigwont thinking about it, and he realizes how futile his stubbornness and his rudeness, his lack of cooperation had been, and he starts to do what his brother Pigwill does. So now when Pigwill is asked to do something, he still says, Pig, uh, he still says I will, but when Pigwont is asked, he now says, me too. In fact, he, he does that so often that in the end, he gets a new name. He's no longer Pig Won't. He's Pig Me Too. In biblical language, Pig Won't, won't repents. And that's the invitation that Jesus was extending to the religious leaders of his day, and it's the invitation he extends to us that in the end, what both sons in the parable should have done, would needed to do, was to repent. One did and one didn't. And the only way that performance will take priority over promise in your life and in my life is if we develop this ongoing pattern of repentance of faith, of, of gospel change and reorientation, of believing and trusting our lives with the King who has come in this way of righteousness as our Savior. And when that happens, we move from promise to performance, but not performance motivated by guilt. Hear me, this is not motivated by guilt. This is motivated out of a love and a gratitude. We live lives of delight, not of dour duty. Life that does because of what God has done for us. So may we not just be sayers of the word, but doers as well, because for the people in God's kingdom, performance takes priority over promise. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this short parable, less well known than the other parable of the sons, but one which reminds us that you are a God who calls us not only to believe and to trust, but to act on that faith in our lives, that our lives would look different because of that, whether here doing vine work as your people in this church and throughout the city, or even just in terms of our relationship with you that we would be people of our word, that we would be people who say something and who do the same thing. May that even change the way that we live our lives this week, whether in work or in other situations. We thank you all, that all of this is true because of what you have done for us. So in response to what you have done as we come to this table, may we live lives of faith and obedience, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.